little things would make me happy because you've got nothing you know the wind change like my day would just be like oh my god this is so much better from that point of view it's really nice just to appreciate the little things welcome to Soho House Stories with me George Lamb in this series I'm going to be meeting inspirational people from all walks of life as they share with me what drives them as well as how they got to where they are now this time I'm speaking to Kiko Matthews. My name is Kiko Matthews and earlier this year, end of March, I arrived in Barbados having become the fastest woman to solo row the Atlantic. Up until 2016, she hadn't had any professional rowing experience. But in March, she arrived in Barbados having rowed nearly 3,000 nautical miles over 49 days, beating the previous world record by about a week guest has set herself quite a challenge given that it was slightly against the odds and when I say that is you've you've had a a fairly tough time in in recent but what's surprising about her story is that back in 2009 Kiko was diagnosed with an extremely rare life-threatening illness called Cushing's disease she had a tumor removed from her pituitary gland and spent a month in intensive care and then seven years later right in the middle of her training the disease came back and she had to have another tumor removed Having received the all clear for a second time, she carried on with her training and made the crossing in world record time. She also raised over £100,000 for the hospital that saved her life. I invited Kiko onto the show because I want to find out what kind of person has the, the mental fortitude and the determination to row across the Atlantic on their own. You know, it's one thing to go and do something which is really, you know, endurance-based and it's tough. But going out into the middle of the ocean on your own to surrender yourself to arguably some of the most volatile terrain in the world in a tiny little boat, that's kind of beyond comprehension almost for me. So I want to start by asking you, when did you first realise that you were sick? quite late in the stage of actually being sick if that made sense so things were happening but I'm doctor's daughter so I had an excuse for everything I wasn't sleeping so I was so excited I was moving to London I was teaching at a school in Dorset and this was summer term I got a new job in Leatherhead so I think the first thing I got these weird spots on my chest so I said to dad what are these and he said oh go to the doctor I hated doing like my doctoring um because it wasn't the spots themselves weren't killing me, but the thing that was causing the spots was killing me. Um, and I was like, oh, I'll be fine. They'll go away. And then three weeks later, I was walk- I'd was i been walking around with a bottle of water in my hand and I taking little sips because I got this funny taste in my mouth. And I was like, Dad, I got this funny taste in my mouth. He goes, oh, let's have a look. Okay, you need to go and see the doctor. Didn't tell me like really why. And mum, <laughs> while I'm there, I remember mum in the kitchen going, I think you should tell him that you're, don't forget to tell me you're a bit podgy and a bit hairy and spotty. And I was like, cheers. <laughs> Thanks, Mum. <laughs> Nothing like your mother to tell you the truth, right? Um, so off I went to the doctor and reeled off the spotty, hairy and podgy things and my knees were feeling a bit funny. Obviously, I hadn't been sleeping. Um, and as I was leaving, I was like, got a funny taste in my mouth. He said, oh, let's have a look. Okay, you've got thrush. That's either HIV or diabetes. And I was like, wicked. And where is like the other option? There was an option. Anyway, I did a wee test and I got diabetes and no family history of it, fit and healthy. A mum got on the internet and was like, 
causes of diabetes, there were a few things. Definitely wasn't pregnant. Unlikely to be family history and all these things. And she goes, oh, I think you've got Cushing's. And dad was like, don't be so ridiculous. <laughs> Doctor's daughter went of Cushing's. It's so rare. And yeah, lo and behold, some tests later and a MRI scan showed up a six millimeter tumor on my pituitary gland, which apparently had been there for five or six years. You get diagnosed with a condition uh, called Cushing's. What is Cushing's exactly? Cushing's disease is caused by the tumour which releases a hormone which signals to your adrenal glands and produces cortisol. Uh, Your cortisol is basically the hormone which responds to stress, helps your body deal with stress both mentally and physically. In the morning, it rises and wakes you up. In the evening, it drops and sends you off to sleep. Levels in the morning, I think, are about 250, 300. Mine were like 3,000 when they were testing me, so... Wow. I was buzzing. <laughs> uh, and it's a, it's a rare condition, right? Very rare. It's like one in 25,000, I think, a year or something, get diagnosed with it. So pretty, pretty rare as far as they go. What does it feel like to be 28 and told you've got a, a condition like this and you've got a brain tumour? One thing is I hadn't really realised how severe it was. I've met other people who are either ill at the moment or have been ill and they're like, when you're in it, Sometimes, like, that's all you're really focusing on is just staying positive and just, you know, just getting on with it. And I think some definitely looking at my mum, who was watching me, she was way more worried about it than I was. She was definitely more focused on the negatives, whereas I was more focused on the, well, I'm just going to get on and do what I've got I'm to do. going to beat the rat, don't yeah, worry. Yeah, exactly. The disease put her body in a critical state and she experienced everything from memory loss to psychosis and osteoporosis. Two and a half weeks in hospital, operation, I went for operation and they realised that I was about to die so they put me into intensive care. So my potassium levels had dropped severely and if they had dropped by 0.1, my heart would have stopped and they wouldn't have been able to jumpstart me because potassium is part of your nerve system. However, the tumour was removed successfully and after a month in hospital, she made a full recovery. Literally all the symptoms like went overnight. So my diabetes disappeared three days later, it had gone, insomnia, gone, memory loss. Like I had this really fuzzy feeling in my head. It was pretty miserable and just disappeared. Often you hear you hear about people going through or facing illness in the way that you did and facing death in the way that you did, uh, and, and it has a real kind of profound life-changing effect on them. Did you start seeing things differently? Yeah, it didn't come straight away. So it wasn't like I left hospital and go, right, I'm changing my life. I had this new job, which I thought was going to be better than my old job. So I was like excited to start that and see how it went. And it was a, it was a school that I thought was going to suit me. But then after about 18 months, I think my level of allowing things to not be great in my life definitely changed. I was like, well, if it's not great, why would I bother doing it? Because I'm not meant to be here. I've got to live my life. I've got to do something, what I want to do. Well, I think when you haven't had that experience, maybe you put up with the crap for a bit longer. I just really wanted to have, I didn't have anything I was really passionate about. I love the environment and I did love science and education, but just not really in the education system that we have, like in a school environment. But there was something that was just missing. And I just, and to be honest, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Right. I didn't want to be a teacher, but I had no idea what else I wanted to do. So you were lacking purpose. Yes, exactly. Thank you. I was lacking purpose. Wanted to find a purpose. Wanted to find something that I really wanted to get up and do in the morning. At the time, I joined a overland sports expedition to Cape Town. It was a voluntary job, and I just knew that something would come up. I'd meet someone, or you do, 
you'd go somewhere and you'd be like, this is where I want to be. And I actually ended up in Uganda. Again, didn't know what I was doing, checked people, did a bit of charity work with a lady I'd met who was setting something up, a local lady. But then I met the guy and he got some paddle boards and I ended up learning how to paddleboard. Totally fell in love with it, out in the environment and really fell in like the animals, the environment, the just being out in nature, physically amazing, mentally great. And when I came back to the UK, I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to do something based around socially, social focus, based around paddleboarding, education, the environment, well-being. And so I set up a charity at the time called The Big Stand, which was about using paddleboarding to um, empower through education and inspire through adventure. The idea that you could educate people better outdoors in the environment that they're in doing the things you're trying to educate them about. So, Do you think that's the case? I totally think that's the case. Um, I mean, and I used to hate it. I mean, imagine failing everything up until the age of 16. Every single exam. And you try hard and you fail. Like, what, what is that doing on their mental health um, and their confidence and all the other things? When they could be outside doing, like, I would take people paddleboarding and I'd show them the bubbles that were coming out of some plant and I'd be like guys look at this this is amazing and you can see photosynthesis happening there and then because it's a sunny day or you see the development of the birds who are like nesting in the boats along the canal or we would I started picking up litter one day in the in Hackney (laughs) Um, and before I knew it everyone was copying me and people were picking up litter and putting it and they hadn't realized how bad the situation was but you could and, and and that's just like the physical stuff then you'd have their well-being, they'd be like, oh my God, I feel so relaxed. It's so amazing. And oh my God, I had no idea that I could do that. When I came here, I thought I was going to fall in. And then I'm like, no, you're pretty much like a pro now because it's such an easy, again, it's such an easy sport that it's a really great um, thing for people who do lack that confidence that when they finish, they're like, oh, I've just achieved something which I had no idea I was going to achieve. And it was a really positive thing. But back, yeah, back to the education. One of the reasons that I didn't stay was because I just used to, it just used to kill me that I was teaching kids things which was so over the head irrelevant all the other things and just essentially creating monsters in there for their mental health which was real, real right shame. okay and so how do you think we can change that given that you've realized that actually being outside is really important would you would you put everybody back in a classroom or would you put them outside i mean ask any outdoor charity or outdoor education center and the difference they see with the naughty kids is like unbelievable you know they suddenly just kind of they just become at one who knows what the trees are doing out there to (laughs) to us but it seems to be very positive I mean it's very rare to find someone who's just like just hate it hate it I mean they think they hate it because all they know otherwise is computer games or concrete but actually if you were to take them out and really show them and you know push them to the top of the mountain or force them to get wet as they go down some rapids and fall out and Oh, they're still alive. They've got to the end. It's like there's something about nature, which is just really, really inherently great, especially for the the resilience and the well-being and and all that stuff. And I think when that's better, then you're more likely to learn about stuff. And there's so much you can teach people outside that is more relevant to life than in the classroom. By 2016, Kiko was ready to take on a much bigger challenge. And having considered a broad field of things that were possible. She set her heart on rowing the Atlantic solo. 
got my story together, why I was doing it, what I wanted to achieve. And it was at King's. Like, it wasn't for King's College Hospital. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be able to cross the Atlantic. And I wanted to cross the Atlantic to show myself that my body and brain were, like, recovered and capable and how interesting it would be. But also to show other people that, you know, a a setback doesn't have to be... It can actually be very positive um, from something that goes wrong, that now I'm going to do this and I'm going to raise money for King's to thank them. The challenge was fully funded by women using a charity especially set up called 100 to get her. You know, I want to show other people that as a female, 37 now, I should probably be having a sensible career with a family, with a house and all the other things. I've got a white van, I live in a cabin at the bottom of my mate's garden near Wimbledon and all the things that basically a woman should not be in inverted commas and like so happy and great. And that's what I want to show other women and girls. And that then, look, we are going to achieve stuff together. So I'm going to cross the Atlantic, but I need you to help me to do it. Because if it's not for you, I won't be going across. So I didn't do corporate sponsorship like most people would do. I went for women only. And so I had like some girls' schools who were involved. I had ladies, younger women, older women, women from companies who were part of it. All sorts of like random connection of women and actually it totally worked because when I was in the Atlantic and I was like so tired I don't care about the world record and then I'd be like no those girls did a 24-hour row in order to raise money to be part of this project I've got to get out there and row and if like if it wasn't for the team of support of community that I had built then I definitely would have been like yeah whatever (laughs) I probably floated my way into Barbados (laughs) when things are tough when you have a challenge you've got that community you kind of call on them and it works and you can get through it. Um, and that is kind of the theme that I'll, I use now throughout my, or will be for forevermore, because I think it's really important. But yeah, so that was April. All came together. What, what kind of training did you do? I'm all quite chilled about it. So I carried on doing like paddleboarding, which was great for the core. There was some bit of rowing in there that I was told I had to do absolutely like the rowing on the row machine totally hated that a um, couple of marathons and some two-hour stints and company in Wimbledon gym sponsored me so I would go and do personal training with them four or five times a week and meetings and things I would just go on my bike so I would cycle everywhere rather than you know as much as possible but I believe you need to enjoy life so this is about achieving what I needed to achieve but making sure that it was that I was happy doing it because then I think you stop doing it if you're not happy doing it you're just like no thanks and then somewhere through this whole process you realised you were sick again yes yeah, so the first time I was ill I was before I, my muscle wasting I was really strong which has baffled the doctors and this time again without realising I was ill mum had said to me back in December I think you need to go back to the doctors and I was like no there's nothing wrong with me like I'm absolutely fine and I was did a marathon um, on the marathon day, I did a rowing marathon. So it's the same distance, 41 kilometers, whatever it is. And I managed to come like eighth in the world for women of my age for that season for the distance. I was like, that's pretty good. I haven't really done much training. <laughs> and then I was overtaking guys. I was in my mountain bike and my trainers and just like regular sports stuff. And, you know, I'm overtaking guys who are in their lycras and their slip on shoes and their skinny little bikes who aren't very happy by the fact they're being overtaken by a chick. And I kind of start questioning it and going, mm, and I sort of, my double chins were maybe a bit more than they usually are. And a couple of my photos, I'd be like, you're a bit podgy in the face. Anyway, went back to the doctors and yeah, my cortisol levels had were higher than they should be. They did a 
MRI scan and they found a four millimeter tumor, which I was over slightly over the moon with because to begin with, they hadn't seen anything. And I was like, well, what's this all about? And then when they found it, I was like, oh, thank goodness. Because again, in my head, all they had to do was to go up and take it out and it'll be fine. And they were like, kings were amazing. Right. And how quick were you in and out? Um, so I had my first doctor blood test at the beginning of June and I was having my operation on the 1st of August. So it was six weeks from, just seven weeks really, from blood test results to being on the table. And how long before you were back in training? Uh, so 10 days later, I did a 100-kilometre bike ride. I cycled to my operation as well, which everyone finds very funny. Did you, <laughs> did you cycle back? No one would let me. I would have done. Right. But my mum was like, no, we're getting you an ad- we're getting you a taxi. So you come out of hospital and you start training again. And within six months, you're you're leaving to row across the Atlantic. Yes, left on February the first. Where did you take off from? Gran Canaria. Yeah, three nautical miles out, and I'm like, ah, oh, forgot my medication. Let's row back again. No. <laughs> so I left my medication in the in the fridge, <laughs> and in fact, actually, I kind of quite wanted a quiet send off. I quite liked the idea of just leaving the leaving the port on my own to like sending myself off into the abyss. So I went and had a pint and some fish and chips at the pub. So you get on your boat and you for a second time and you <laughs> and you, you you row out. And how long before it kind of kicks in like, okay, this is, you know, this is real. We're doing this. I'm actually rowing across the Atlantic. I don't remember, but I remember leaving going, you are doing like you are doing this now. It had been so stressful getting the money the emails, the trying to get a team to help support me. Plus, I got like a job that I was trying to do at the same. You know, I got loads of things going on, and then you saw, you know, Grand Canaries disappearing, and then there's no land. Then you look out, and you're like, oh, I really am kind of gone now. This is it. So, so what do your days look like when you're out there? I try to do two hours two hours on and then 30 minutes off and then as the real heat of the day I would have a bit longer I was very good at getting off the oars on time I was not quite so good at getting on the oars on time (laughs) it's funny that and what was the sea like out there? I mean relentless like seriously relentless were you in any big storms? I've got no idea because I've got no idea what a storm is I mean you see it on telly but that's all like perfect storm is always going to be like that, what the one-off. I had a couple of really massive waves. I thought they were like 80 foot. I'm basing that on the size of a, a building and then looking at this wall of water coming towards me and going, yeah, that's about 80 foot. Then at the top, they they sort of like, curl over and crash. It's like like you see the little white horses, as we usually call them, when you're out at sea, you can see them. And you don't really want to be at the top of a 40, 80-foot wave at that particular time when it crashes on you. I did do a little... I did pray to God, and I was like, (laughs) sorry I haven't been chatting to you for 25 years, but, like, I'm really sorry, but please don't let this wave crash on me. So, and and what do you do? You just kind of... You give yourself over to it? Yeah, you have to. Like, you you have to just let go. Like, you've got everything in place that says you're going to survive. But, yeah, like I say, you you just had to get on with it. And you're just thinking, 
Oh my God, if only everyone could, if only people could see me, <laughs> what I was going through right now. I mean, it was a little bit funny, but it's also a bit hairy. And uh, were there any points where you, where you wanted to quit? No, there were points when I was like, I don't care about the world record. It took about five weeks for me to not be thinking about how relentless it was. Because you've just done two hours of rowing, which is a long time. You get a 30-minute break. You're like, oh, my God, I've got to go out again. I've got to do that all over again. I've just done that. And then you do a day. You're like, I've still got another day. And another day. And another day. That's like 12 hours of rowing in the heat for 49 days. And it wasn't until I really, like, found, like got into the groove of it and really was at one with everything and I stopped listening to music stopped listening to podcasts stopped everything but I was just like oh yeah out I go again out I go again the brain had probably just switched off nothing was stimulating it anymore and it didn't need that stim- so I stopped thinking so much when you stop thinking time obviously flows flies quicker so my two hours didn't seem like two hours so much when I just didn't need the entertainment did you learn anything about the ocean? Like, you have no control. Like, it's strong, you know. But it's massive. Like, I was stand there, I saw five boats. This is like the M25 of traffic. I saw five boats. I would stand up and at the night and i see the beautiful sun setting normally, look around and be like, can't see anyone for miles. Can't see anyone. Where is everyone? There were people, apparently, they were closer to me on the International Space Station than they were on Earth. That is how big the ocean is. And you don't, like you sit on your beach and you look at the sea. But when you're in the middle and you haven't seen anything for days and days and days and days and days, and it's just you and you're like, it's even the animals you haven't seen for days and days. Like, even a bird is exciting because you haven't seen anything. So, yeah, it is vast. And, and obviously, you know, you, uh, uh, you knew that you wanted to be outside more. Do you feel that it, it heightened your relationship with nature, this whole journey? It's weird. I'd say 90% 90% of the journey I loved, despite the fact that it was boring and painful. And I really enjoyed the experience. Wasn't didn't get lonely um, or any of that. You really learn the simple things, like just so little things would make me happy because you've got nothing. You know, the wind change. Like, my day would just be like, oh, my God, this is so much better. Or... The waves would be a bit bigger or you'd sit on your bottom in a different way and it would be comfortable. Or you'd find an extra bag of sweeties which you didn't realise you had or, you know, when the birds came to see you was, like, the highlight of your day. And then, like, when you're at home, none of those things you'd even you'd even realise had happened, let alone made you happy. So it does, from that point of view, it's really nice just to appreciate the little things. You think that's the biggest lesson you learnt from it then? I'm definitely not one for stuff and for finding happiness in in material things. But it's definitely it definitely gave me a a very good sort of like it made it very obvious to me and, and what I wanna do is be able to like pass on that obviousness to other people. It's like it literally was, you know, we have so much stuff in life. I really don't need that. No, I don't need that anymore. I don't actually and I've got rid of quite a lot of stuff. I haven't used and you kind of become attached to it and you think you're going to need it and it's like you don't you don't need it like just survived on my own with nothing on the 22nd of March 2018 she'd completed a 2,602 nautical mile journey 
to Port St. Charles, Barbados. She'd made a new world record of 49 days, 7 hours and 15 minutes. The previous record was held by a French rower and was 56 days, 10 hours and 9 minutes. She'd beaten it by about a week. And she'd also raised over £100,000 for King's College Hospital in the process. What was the reaction like from from all the ladies who'd helped you? Yeah, I think they were... I mean, it was amazing because, I mean, I was just... I was so pleased that that's what I decided to do and not go not go big money, but go for team. Um, you know, I had so many people who were like, that's so inspirational and I've done this. And I mean, even even the people who I wasn't... Who, who weren't part of the team, so to speak, were like, I had someone who was giving birth... This is, someone was giving birth who knew of my story... And was like, as she was going through it, she's like, if Kiko can cross the Atlantic, then I can get through this. I've had people who bought rowing machines. I've had people who have phoned me up who've got the same illness as me. I've, I like, want to know about stuff and how inspirational. So it's really great because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to show people that they can do anything, that, like, please go out there and give it a go. And then someone says to me, oh, I can't do that. I'm like, hang on a minute. What do you mean you can't do it? I couldn't row. I'd never been to sea. And I've... Um, and it really is like that. And I think they're you know, so proud. The schools that have been involved are really proud. You know, there's lots of people retweeting and and that kind of thing. And I was just, I was just so pleased that I had actually pulled it off for them because they were the ones who put their, not only their money, but their emotional support and their emotional backing on it. And then I had done what I said I was going to do. So I was just very very happy that for that reason that I had completed it that they I hope felt like they were felt proud to be part of it and have you got any plans to do another challenge I've got plans to do other challenges I've got some little ones I've someone asked me if I wanted to run a uh, ultra marathon in the desert and I said yes and then the next day I did a one mile run like I can't run I hate it (laughs) so in October I'm doing a 260 kilometer run in the desert um which I, you know, everyone's going, and, and again, I'm like, oh, come on, Kiko, if you'd rode the Atlantic, then of course you can do this. And everyone's like, well, you can do it, of course you can do it. So I can't even get out of it now. Um, I'm doing a nice little more fun sort of cycle and sailing thing um, from UK around Denmark and back to UK. And that's all based around plastic and the environment and stuff, because that's where I want to take my next big project, which we are in the making of doing, which is going to be back home. It's going to be more. Less solo, but I'm like leading it. But there's, I'll be the only one who's doing it in full. But people can join. We'll be meeting people every evening. There will be apps involved to get everyone in, involved. And it's all based around the environment and change. And that's what I really want to use. I want to use my, my, I guess I'm the marketing really for change. I want to, I want to make a change. I want to be able to be a person that people look up to or look for inspiration to or see me doing stuff. And maybe I can educate them whatever it is, that I'm not just someone who goes out and rows the Atlantic and does weird and wonderful, crazy adventures, but there's actually a full-on purpose, which is not, which is more than just awareness, because there's lots of, I can bring awareness of this or that, but actually the challenge itself needs to be doing something and bringing that change, because I don't see, you know, you do all of these things, like all these endurance events and stuff, and, you know, people raise money for stuff, and that's great, but I don't think we can rely purely on charitable donations all the time. I think we need to do more physically 
with other people and with our environment to make a difference. It's not just about relying on a charity to do it or the government to do it. We as people need to have a much bigger input in the world around us and the people around us in order for it to work. We're too reliant on someone else to sort it out. We'll give you money and you can sort it out. It's like, actually, we wouldn't need to give the money if we all did it a bit of it ourselves. Kiko, what a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I'm uh, I'm in awe of your achievements. I feel like I want to ask you questions now. Well, we'll have, we'll have to have a <laughs> cup of tea afterwards. <laughs> this episode of Soho House Stories was brought to you by Radio Wolfgang and Soho House. It featured me, George Lamb, talking to Kiko Matthews. For more information about Kiko and her work, visit kikomatthews.co.uk.